This is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and December 31st, please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Father Vincent Toomey, who is a professor emeritus of theology at St. Patrick's Pontifical University, Manuth, Ireland. A former doctoral student of Joseph Ratzinger, Father Toomey is the author of several books and articles, including Pope Benedict XVI, The Conscience of Our Age. With Father Vincent Toomey, we go inside the pages of The Dynamics of the Liturgy, Joseph Ratzinger's Theology of Liturgy, published by Ignatius Press. Father Toomey, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me to come and speak with you. I couldn't be more thrilled with the dynamics of liturgy, Joseph Ratzinger's theology of liturgy. I don't know how to say it, a devotee of now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI long ago when he first had published The Spirit of the Liturgy. It changed everything in how I looked at the liturgy, the life of the church, just the activity of the spirit is just tremendous, wasn't it? That shows you how much he was had a passion about the liturgy. As you know, um, he was at the council, he was behind the, the whole liturgical movement, and he was delighted with the document produced by the Second Vatican Council on the liturgy, on the sacred liturgy. Uh, but then the implementation of the do- document went pear-shaped. And mm-hmm. ever since then, he's been trying to get the church to rethink its approach to the liturgy. And even when he was prefect of the Congregation of the, Do- of the Doctrine of the Faith, when he was mm-hmm. going from morning to evening without stop, dealing with all the world's problems, whenever he had a free moment, he would try and write his book to bring all his thoughts together in the spirit of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite the other book, of course, that he did the very same thing for was Jesus of Nazareth, you know, because mm-hmm. these are the two main, as it were, areas, two, two main focuses for the church today. First of all, our Lord and Jesus Christ, true God and true man, and the liturgy, the divine worship, the means by which our salvation is achieved here and now by, by participating in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and, in, and into heaven and ascension. So, uh, you know, what we're dealing with is something not peripheral, something absolutely central to the whole mission of the church. And I'm a divine word missionary, and the mission of the church is my central concern, you know. And I, I am rather upset uh, sometimes when I go to churches uh, and see the way the liturgy is, is actually celebrated without reverence, without uh, due attention to the, the basics in the liturgy. So my book was an attempt to try and contribute to that. And uh, as I think you will know from reading it, uh, I got my inspiration from my time as a missionary in Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. I was teaching in the seminary there for Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. These wonderful young 
seminarians, and they'd all come from a background which was quite extraordinary. Um, a lot of them were second generation, first generation, literally from the Stone Ages, and they had preserved these rituals. So when I was teaching sacramental theology in Papua New Guinea, I was anxious to find out what understanding of ritual did they have. Then I discovered how impoverished our Western understanding is of ritual. And that helped me then to try and find a new way of approaching the theology of the sacraments. And in this, I was inspired also by Joseph Ratzinger. He had a number of small essays, two really, two major essays, but they're quite small, where he gives his own profound uh, analysis, profound insight into the nature of symbol. And he points out that in nature of sacrament, sacraments are based on our humanity, on our bodiliness, on those, what he calls knotenpunkte, those pivotal points in our lives where we are open to, to the other world, yeah, to God. Mm-hmm. And these are birth, death, marriage, ordination, or coronation of, of a king. These were, these were all ritualized. And I was lucky, I had providentially, one of my confreres had, had been studying cultural anthropology, which studied ritual from a totally new perspective. Uh, and that helped me enormously to actually appreciate what the liturgy really should be about. Uh, you see, my, my, I think Ratzinger as well, Benedict's main criticism, mine as well, is that the liturgy as we have it at the moment is really a bit too um, easy to be subjectively performed, use that word, yeah? Mm-hmm. It can turn into entertainment. It, it doesn't have that sacral nature, I, w- I was able to call it, you know? And it's interesting in the, I was reading again, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy from the Second Vatican Council. The number of times it's used the words sacred, the sacred U- Eucharist, the sacred liturgy. And in a sense, the way very often we, we actually celebrate above all the mass, but the other sacraments as well, matrimony and baptism and confirmation is very functionalistic. It doesn't have the sense of awe and wonder that actually should be part of our experience of the liturgy. And when the liturgy is actually celebrated as it is prescribed, when we pay attention to the small details, that's what liturgy is all about, ultimately. All the details are full of dense meaning, which we must appreciate. And when we do that, suddenly the liturgy begins to speak, not only to the mind, but to the heart. Oh, I'm so glad you put it that way. That's so true, because sometimes we don't appreciate what we're entering into, and that words matter, our actions matter. And because we don't understand the gravitas of what the church gives us already in the liturgy, in in that shared prayer of the whole church, we invent things, don't we? I mean, we we get nervous, we get scared. So we've got to add words, we've got to add actions, we got to do things because we just don't trust what the church already has given us. Exactly. Well, that's very well put, you know. I gave some lectures in, in, in Freiburg in Switzerland once on the sacraments, and there was a, a Benedictine monk there from France, actually, and uh, he said to me, we have discovered the secret of the new liturgy. What's that? He said, every detail counts. You take nothing for granted. And every, every, every candle 
every cloth on the altar. It all has symbolic meaning. And when we, we mightn't understand it fully because the religious symbols are actually beyond real comprehension. We can grasp something of their meaning, but to, to treat them with that kind of reverence and devotion, because after all, at during the mass, we hear the word of God. How often do we understand it's the word of God, God's inspired word. And it has to be spoken, not in the way we would write a letter or read the newspaper or read a book, but the way we read the word of God, giving, that, giving it that devotion. And that name means too, we have to prepare for it. We can't just get up and read it. We have to read it beforehand, meditate on it, you know? And we never understand it fully, especially the Old Testament, because very often they're quite dense. The meaning is really very, very difficult. But somehow or other, the Old Testament in particular is actually, and the New Testament, what led to the New Testament is the whole history of salvation. And we are in the Eucharist, we are, each time we celebrate Mass, we're brought into that history, reach, reaching right back to the beginning of time. And then with Abraham and Moses and the prophets, you know, and we are all part of that greater movement within history, which is called salvation history. So by paying attention, as this monk said, put it to me, by paying attention to every detail, every bit of, of vestment that we use, you know, uh, I think we have an awful lot to learn from the Mass as was celebrated before the Council, the so-called Latin Mass, because yeah? there every detail was prescribed, yeah? the so-called rubrics, those red um, instructions for the priest and the community as to what to do at different times of the Mass. Yeah? But also take, for example, the priest himself. In the, um, in, in the Latin Mass, uh, as it was before the Council, when the priest was in the sacristy vesting, you know, there was a prayer for every item he put on. The amos or the stole or the sing, beautiful prayers in Latin. And that all helped him to kind of concentrate on the, the wonderful thing he's going to do, which is to act in the person of Christ, to be the head of the church and the people of the body of the church, the body of Christ. Yeah? So, and then the sacristy was normally enveloped in silence. And with that silence, then we all prepare, we go in procession then into the sanctuary to begin the, the great celebration. So I think um, Ratzinger himself was keen that we would really learn from the old liturgy, the so-called Latin liturgy, because um, as Victor Turner, whom I quote in my book, the great uh, anthropologist of ritual put it, the church had over 2000 years developed a most wonderful liturgy that actually is a work of art in its own, in its own right, but also it, it incorporated all the dynamics of ritual we find in all the religions of the world, even the most so-called primitive. And that actually is what we have to regain for ourselves. And so the actual thing I learned from this Benedictine monk in, in Switzerland was to pay attention to every detail. It's as simple as that, to take nothing for granted. And our people need to understand that too. I mean, even the, their actions, what they say, 
when they make a vow, when they say yes, or they respond, that's full and active participation, isn't it? That we understand and enter into it authentically. And a lot of times we just haven't been prepared, whether it's catechesis or the example maybe of those liturgical ministers or even the celebrant to kind of set the stage for those types of dynamic, as it were, encounters. That is true. Absolutely. Uh, the wonderful thing about the new liturgy is that it stresses that all participants, priests and people, deacon, lectors, we're all celebrants. I think that's wonderful. It's not just not the priest up there doing his own thing, you know. The priest and the people are in dialogue because Christ is in dialogue with his bride, the church. And so that every movement everyone does in the church, be it the, you know, the server at the altar, be it the lector or the people in the pews, they're all concelebrating to a certain extent, you know, with the priest in offering up the sacrifice to the father. Sorry, you talk about catechesis. That is absolutely true. Ratzinger himself, um, at a very famous talk he gave in Trier, I think, in the Liturgical Institute there, uh, stressed the need for the church, the priests and the catechists to catechize the people, to give them an understanding of what it's all about. You know? Like one of the things that, 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 that uh, two aspects of the liturgy that I, I discovered myself in writing that book once again, and that is the cosmological aspect of the liturgy. It's not just a group of people coming together for a prayer meeting. It's not just a devotional exercise. Yeah? It's actually fulfilling what God intended when he brought the creation into existence. The whole cosmos, as it were, is actually taken up to, and we are taking, we take the cosmos up into God's own life in the Holy Trinity. That's symbolized, of course, even by the prayers over the bread and wine, yeah? When the priest says, a fruit of the earth and work of human hands, the interaction between man and creation, or the fruit of the vine and the work of human hands, all of that is, the vine comes from the sun and the rain and so also the cereal, the wheat for the, for the bread. And that is all taken up in those simple gestures as we offer creation back to the creator. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah? The other aspect that actually I didn't give sufficient attention to in my book, that is the so-called eschatological, it's a wonderful word, it really means the end of time, you know, that we're actually moving towards the actual culmination of all history when Christ will come again in glory. And the early church understood this very early on, and therefore they said mass facing the rising sun. Symbolize, sun symbolizes the Christ in glory, the, re the resurrected Christ coming in coming in, in glory at the end of time, but already anticipated during the Holy Mass, which I think is wonderful, you know. And this means that all human activities, all, all his, history is actually funneled into that moment when we bring the whole of, of the cosmos back to its creator and anticipate the coming in glory of Christ at the end of time. What's fascinating about the orientation of uh, the early church's orientation of the mass at orientum facing the east is that it reflects what's found in most religions 
even though all ancient pagan religions, Sumerians and Babylonians, yeah, the East, because in, in Ireland here, we have a place called Newgrange. And um, it was only discovered quite recently. It goes back about 5,000 years. Yeah. And it's the whole, it's a tomb, a huge, big, vast tomb, three, with three, um, as it were, three areas inside. And there's a passage into the tomb. And there is a window in the tomb. And on the shortest day of the year, 21st of, of, of December, the sun comes into that window and creeps up the corridor and lights up the whole inside of the tomb, three sections of the tomb, you know. So our ancestors were full of wonder at, you know, at creation, but also it's midwinter, darkness is at its greatest, and yet light is there, there's hope there, you know. And I think that is absolutely wonderful. So the, the temple in Jerusalem was also facing east. And the early Christians in Jerusalem, they faced east towards Mount Olive, because that's where the second coming was expected in the early church. Yeah? So in this come, brings us then to a very thorny point, and that is the rightness or wrongness of the priest facing the people all the time during Mass. Yeah? Um, I think Ratzinger and I certainly and others would recommend that at least from the offertory on, priests and people would face the same direction towards the liturgical east. Many churches are not actually faced east because we that was went out of our memory in the last hundred years or so. But the older churches are all facing east. If you go in with your compass, you can see that, you know. But even if it's not, there's a liturgical east represented by the cross in the wall. And that priests and people then are facing in the one direction for the, for the offertory and for the sacrifice of the mass until the communion. And then we go back and we become, as it were, with each other again. You know? But I think that, that, that movement, that dynamic, as it were, of the priest moving towards with the people, you know, facing towards the, the east, the, 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 or the liturgical east at least, uh, represented by a cross, um, that I, I think that would change the dynamic of the liturgy quite radically. Now, as a priest, who, who the privilege of being a priest, um, I, I know what it is to have to face the people all the time, especially during those sacred moments of the offertory and the Eucharistic prayer, consecration. Yeah? Um, when you're facing the people, you're on stage whether you like it or not. You know. uh, I, I've been an actor some early, early as, as a youngster, I did a fair amount of acting before I entered the, the, the uh, became a priest. But I also am a lecturer and I know it is the dynamics of facing people. You know. you, you're, in, you're in a dialogue. Now that's perfect for the first part of the mass, which is a dialogue between the word of God and the, and the faithful. You know. But from the second part, from the offertory on, then of course, it's no longer a dialogue between the faithful and the priest representing Christ, but between the Christ and the Father, as it were, going towards the Father, you know, and going towards the second coming, as, as, as like Moses leading the people into the promised land. You know, the priest there is just leading the people. And I think that actually that would 
I, I have experienced it only once. Uh, friends of mine run a, a monastery in Germany, and they've always celebrated the Mass that way. And it is really quite different, quite an experience to celebrate Mass, not facing the people, but facing the East during the offertory and the sacrifice, the Eucharistic prayer. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Now we return to Inside the Pages. See, that's just one action. And it's a very important action, but the whole entire celebration of the Eucharist, actually yeah. the entire celebration of all of our sacraments in the liturgy, they all have that profundity of meaning. Every exactly. word matters. That's true. Everything that you say is important. Every gesture, kneeling, standing, they all have significance. In our own anthropology, don't you think, Father? We understand that because we have certain actions and rituals that we have in our own homes that if we don't follow through on certain occasions, whether those big holiday times with family, they're missed. Whether it's gathering with a family around a table or the actions, it can cause division. It can rip us apart. Things get lost. And that's kind of what happened. I'm not trying to be too simplistic, but following the council for what was attempted with a liturgy, a lot of that was communicated poorly and rushed into and Unfortunately, some very important fundamentals were lost. And I think that's what in the dynamics of the liturgy, the book that you've put together and along amplifying the work of Pope Benedict XVI, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. I think that's why this is so important because we need, for the sake of that handing on, we need to understand those elements again to enter into that dynamic nature of the liturgy once again, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think uh, it was interesting that around 1970, Mary Douglas, she was an English Catholic anthropologist, and she uh, she's mentioned in the footnotes, but she um, raised the alarm at the time. She said, and she spoke to these clerics who were introducing the new liturgy, and they had no time for the rubrics, no time for ritual. They were anti-ritual. 
because ritual meant you know just doing it by rote, not having any real meaning. So they wanted to give it meaning by stressing, you know, the intelligibility of the of the mass uh, or sacraments. But they're not intelligible. The very word sacrament means mystery, mysterium. And the and she also says that what's going to happen is once you abandon the rituals. The next stage then is a kind of interiority. You become spiritual, all spirituality is all that matters. And that fades off, then you're left with good works, social work, social justice. Today we have it, peace, justice, and the integrity of creation. That's all that matters, you know, because we've lost the, the, the symbolic um, way of actually expressing the faith that we have, which is a gift of God, in a way appropriate to that faith. You know? So, and also somebody sent me a, 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 a section of a book recently by um, someone who has drawn attention to the fact that today rituals, even as you mentioned in the home, even they are going. That we're in a kind of anti-ritual mode of, of, of uh, culture, really, way of thinking. And we don't appreciate fully what you said, for example, the Sunday's lunch to bring the people together. The uh, various things during the day, the, the family prayer at night, you know, that's also a ritual, if it's as it used to be, saying the rosary here in Ireland, we always say the rosary at night, uh, we didn't like it, we were fed up with it, we were bored, but it was a, it brought us together, and afterwards then you felt better in actual fact, you know. So uh, rituals are part of, we can't get, we, we can't get rid of them. Uh, unfortunately, the kind of way of life we have today where everything is kind of disposable where nothing is kind of permanent that that is really a difficult culture in which to stress the value of of rituals you know, rituals is repetition not always the same familiarity but not over familiar repetition and certain uh, as well reverence for what is done respect you know um, i'm always fascinated uh, you know, with, with sport today. Sport really has become a new re religion. There's all the trappings of it. People dress up. For example, when the Irish rugby team are playing England or France, people dress up in green. Suddenly, they're all of a sudden all Irish. And that symbolic colour links them together. That's what symbols do, by the way. They link people together. They give you a kind of a bigger vision and then they go to the to the stadium. There are drums. There's all kind of marches. There, there's music, and then you know they march out onto the field, and then they have the anthem, and then they begin the match. You know, it's all ritual, and people like it that way. You know, they change it, of course, bit bit by bit. But but, but that is a man-made ritual. The liturgy is not man-made. And the um, Ratzinger himself uh, criticizes the way the um, intended reform, the reform intended by the council was implemented. It was implemented by a committee, a commission. That's not the way um, ritual develops. Ritual develops organically. And this is what the anthropologists recognized in the in the old mass, in the so-called old mass of the Latin mass of John the 23rd, he was the last to change it. 
that it was something that had actually grown over two millennia, gradually, always changing, but very, very slowly and subtly, you know, according to new insights, to the needs, pastoral needs, etc. And I think what we have to do now is what the what the reformers did was that they they they, they reduced the liturgy to the bare minimum, a skeleton, if you wish, you know. And all is there. All the essentials are there. You know? And Christ, and God works through these sacramental signs and these liturgies. But our task is to give flesh to that skeleton, to make it, to fill it out. And that will only happen gradually. It can't be done overnight. And we have to each, in his own or her own way, each parish, each priest, you know, to do his his or her own way of actually contributing it. And I think here, for example, the choir music in the Mass is so important. We forget that originally the Mass was sung. And our Lord in the synagogue would have sung the Psalms, you know. There was liturgy music in, in the in, in the temple. So the and the Gregorian chant I once heard. It said that it goes back to the music found in the synagogue that Jesus and the disciples would have sang. You know, it developed, of course, in the course of centuries. That's why Gregorian chant has a universality, a universal appeal. And even in, in modern times, we've had various um, occasions when recordings of uh, Gregorian chant in the various monasteries, Montserrat in Spain or Solem or Fongambo in France, they become hits, you know, hit the chart, the top of the chart, because ordinary, they just simply, there's a, there's a beauty about them. Mm -hmm. And all forms of beauty, of course, do actually touch the soul. So that's one form, which is music. And I think there's so much we can we, that can be done. In the book, I, dis, I, I discuss Ratzinger's um, thesis on music and how after the council, uh, an idea associated with Karl Rahner and Vorgrimmler, two German, very, very prominent and marvelous theologians, but they were of the opinion that music is something added. It's not intrinsic to the liturgy. So it's kind of, uh, therefore, you, can, you, you have all kinds of hymns being brought in that are not really related to the actual action and significance of the liturgy. Whereas the Gregorian chant emerges out of the liturgy. Everything is actually, as it were, a flowering of the seed that is the liturgy. So I think that's where I would begin myself, apart from, you know, paying more attention, as you said, to the words, to the gestures, all the priest's gestures, all the people's gestures, all the deacon's gestures, or the late lector, you know, all of that has got to be you know, given attention, but, but above all, we have to re restore that beauty to the liturgy, which actually has been the great achievement of the church down to the centuries. If you look at the great cathedrals of Europe, the great cathedrals of, of America. When I was in America, I was fascinated by the extraordinary cathedrals that were built by the penance of the poor. New York, for example, or New York, or. Boston, wherever, you know, absolutely wonderful, where, you know, they, they, they also expressed this extraordinary 
the dignity that a man has or a woman has because of the faith, you know. And they, uh, I was reading the biography of John Paul the First recently, and he he describes how as a child went into this beautiful church and he felt oh, he felt different. He said that was that's me. That's made for me, you know. So that even when things were hard in America, the the immigrants, Irish and Italian and German, etc., they put their pennies together and bought and built these wonderful churches. And it gave it restored their dignity and gave them purpose and hope in life. Yeah. So I think music and then of course the churches themselves, uh, down through the centuries, we've had various forms of church architecture, Romanesque, Gothic, Baroque, etc. Um, and the modern architecture has tried to kind of create a modern abstract art in the church. I just wonder if that's the way forward. I think we need visual helps. We need the, the, the icons of to remind us that when we celebrate mass or any of the sacraments, we do so in the company of the angels and the saints. That's part of the eschatological dimension, that we actually enter into the, uh, the actual sacred liturgy in heaven. And we have to be reminded of that because it doesn't occur to us spontaneously. So I think there's a huge amount of work to be done there. And I think it's very exciting because it's something that can be done. But what is to be avoided, of course, is trying to create your, our own liturgies by bringing in trivial things like balloons. And uh, I heard that in, in Easter, you know, or something like that, blowing balloons or having a dance around the altar or something like that. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't help, you know. We'll continue our conversation with Father Vincent Toomey in our next episode. With Father Vincent Toomey, we've gone inside the pages of The Dynamics of the Liturgy, Joseph Ratzinger's Theology of Liturgy. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, visit ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it contained in the free Discerning Hearts app. You can also watch the video of our conversation on the Discerning Hearts YouTube channel. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.